Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is November the 18th, 2016, and this is episode 1901 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday. It is time for the listener council call. This is the expert councils that you guys send your questions into. Just a reminder real quick about all of the expert council members and who they are and uh, what they do. Because maybe I'll say that enough because sometimes we don't get enough questions for certain council members and what have you. We have Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy from doomandbloom.net. Those guys are uh, here to answer all your questions about medical preparedness. Ben Falk from Whole, Whole Systems Design on any permaculture questions, specifically northern climate. Uh, northern uh, humid climate being from New England. Gary Collins from the Primal Power Method to answer all your questions about uh, health and nutrition from a primal paleo standpoint. He can also answer questions about off-grid living because he's building his own off-grid space. Um, Keith Snow of Harvest Eating answers all your questions about cooking and cooking-related things. Darby Simpson, a full-time farmer, can ask her all your questions about farming, specifically pasture-based farming, uh, beef, uh, pork, and poultry. Stephen Harris of Stephen Harris one Stephen Harris dot net or everything you can think of one two three four dot com uh, knowledge publications is the guy to go to for all of your energy questions. If it's about energy or it's about chemistry or it's about is this thing really work, he's probably the guy to ask. Michael Jordan of a bee friendly company to answer your questions on bees, apiary management, and mead making. Nick Ferguson of Permaculture Classroom can also take your permaculture questions, uh, specifically uh, into things like small livestock, small scale uh, homesteading and permaculture, uh, plant propagation, and things like that. John Pugliano of the Wealth Studying Podcast can answer all your questions about investing. Uh, and also ham radio questions as well, because he is a full-time ham radio guy. And Paul Wheaton uh, gives us weekly, or I'd say bi-weekly updates of what he's doing with Wheaton Labs. Jeff Lawton, probably the most renowned permaculture teacher in the world, answers all your big-picture permaculture questions. Erica Strauss of Northwest Edible Life. She can answer all your questions on small-scale suburban homesteading, getting the most out of your land, cooking and preserving food, making fermented foods, and working with small livestock. Tim Glantz of Old Grouch Military Surplus can answer all your questions about military surplus gear, military vehicles and equipment, bug-out vehicles, alternative fuels, and ham radio communications as well. Brian Black from ITS Tactical can answer all your questions on everything tactical, from guns to gear to skill sets and more. And Michael and Sue LaPrise of HaloBySue.com can answer all your questions relating to uh, raising your children in, in the modern world and homeschooling, all that good stuff. So that's what's at your disposal. That's what I've built with the expert council. And remember, to have a question answered by an expert council member on a show like this, send the email to me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put the subject line TSPC expert in the subject line TSPC expert, and then tell me your question and which council member you'd like to uh, to address it to. And remember, you can always meet our expert council members and learn more about them at the Meet Our Expert Council page. Today, our questions include the gardener versus the evil that is Bermuda grass for Nick Ferguson, the ins and out of the new heated beehives by Michael Jordan, considerations when buying property with wetlands from Ben Falk. The Skinny on CR123 Batteries from Stephen Harris. Forest Forage for Pastured Pigs by Darby Simpson. 
Grains versus Nuts versus Seeds for Paleo with Gary Collins, The Proper Use of a Subsoiler with Jeff Lawton, and I'll be taking a final question today on why we should not refer to the President as our Commander-in-Chief. Note the R in there, O-U-R, not A-R-E, our Commander-in-Chief, specifically us civilian types, and why it's dangerous that people are beginning to do that. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was, do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1901 because the episode is 1901. We have Here Comes the Campbell Duck. We have Theodore Rex is loose in the paddock. And we have the righteous fists of heaven go down hard. And in other news, Marconi receives a radio signal from across the Atlantic. The transatlantic wireless network is here. J.P. Morgan founds U.S. Steel. It starts out with $1.4 billion dollars. That would be about $40 billion in $2015. Dr. Alzheimer diagnoses a strange dementia in a patient. Yes, it's Alzheimer's disease. And the electric vacuum cleaner is patented. All vacuum cleaners will be based on this design. Uh, so, you know, every, every episode we have this history segment, and we go back to the year that was the episode. We have now entered the 1900s. Theodore Rex, as you might imagine, is about Teddy Roosevelt. You can read that one yourself, because I'm going to read... Here comes the Campbell Duck. As you might know, I have an affinity for ducks as a redneck, hippie, duck farmer with guns. That's how I describe myself. Anyway, all Miss Campbell wanted was a good meat bird to feed her family. Ducks seemed like a good choice. So she crossed a fawn and white Indian runner with a rowan. That did the trick. This is like crossing a long-distance runner uh, with a ball player from Old Miss. What you get is a short Michael Orr that can lay 300 eggs a year. At this time, a duck's color is important, so she breeds her new Campbell duck with a pencil rudder to give it a buff color similar to a uniform of a British soldier. This sounds like a lot of hooey. Say nothing, let's move on. She names it the Khaki Campbell. Egg production is high, but they are not good brooders. That means they don't like sitting around and keep their eggs warm. But if all you want are eggs for breakfast, you are solid. Adel Campbell introduces her new breed to the English public this year. They won't come to the United States for another 20 years. Their popularity will soar. In the 1970s, along with the back-to-the-farm craze, they will become popular with the Asian community as well. My take by Alex Shrugged. I don't recall the back-to-the-farm craze of the 1970s. I recall I don't want to take a bath anymore craze, but it was short-lived. The statistics on this particular duck are impressive. Incubation takes 23 to 28 days. They reach maturity in seven months. An adult weighs about three to five pounds. Also, in researching this topic, I noticed the retired people enjoy raising this duck. How do I know this? Because they mentioned this freaking duck in their obituary. How many times have you seen this line in their obituary? And she loved raising her 17 khaki Campbells. If a bunch of old people think chasing these ducks around the yard is a reasonable thing to do, who am I to argue? I've seen warnings that certain crossbreeds of Campbells do not lay well. A word to the wise is sufficient. 
Yeah, the Khaki Campbell's a great duck. Um, but Miss Campbell failed in her attempt to make a dual-purpose duck out of the Khaki Campbell. Um, they are way too light of a bird. Five pounds? I have never seen an honest-to-God five-pound Khaki Campbell duck. I just haven't. Uh, they are a, a very, very light breed, and that's what makes them great layers. Uh, you might find a drake or two that's been fed really well that hits five pounds, but your ducks, right? So with ducks, you don't have hens and roosters. you got ducks and drakes. Your ducks are going to go about two and three-quarter to three pounds. And when you get down to meat, you're looking at a pound of meat if you are lucky. So they are really a specialist duck at laying eggs, and they're very good at it. We have many of them here. I actually prefer, though, the golden layer. The golden layer will not really get you into dual purpose either. The golden layer is uh, not going to get you up much heavier. They're about the same size as Khaki Campbell. Uh, they lay about the same number of eggs. They both have you know records of up to 300 eggs a year. The thing I've noticed about the golden layers versus the khakis, they're calmer. They freak out less. And one of the things you will have to deal with if you're going to deal with ducks is freaking out ducks. It hurts their laying rates. It hurts their attitude. It hurts everything. For instance, right now, Lucy, our new dog, has basically been trained to not chase the ducks anymore. However, she chased the ducks a couple times. So when they see her, they all run home. I'm serious. They can be all the way on the far side of the property. If she goes near them, they all line up and they all run back to their house to hide from the evil Lucy dog. So we're working on winding them down for that. The most high-strung ducks I have are runners and khaki camels. And that would seem that, you know, one stems from the other. The layer, the golden layer, or the Metzer 300 golden layer, all I, as I know, the only place you can get it from reliably is Metzer Farms, actually comes out of khaki camel uh, lines. And it's it's been meant to improve, a little bit more calm. Uh, they also don't brood worth a damn. So if you want to brood your ducks, khakis or otherwise, Get some Muscovy girls. They'll brood anything. In fact, if you don't let them brood, uh, they can get really upset and they can even die on you. So I know that really wasn't a history take on that, but uh, I like ducks. And every once in a while, we got to mix it up. Anyway, we have now entered the 1900s. The world will begin to once again change at rapid pace. We'll go through many triumphs and horrors over the next 100 episodes as we get close to catching up to the time that, uh, that we all know and I've all lived through. I look forward to that. With that, let's go ahead and take our first question for today's show. This question is for Nick Ferguson, and it is on how to deal with the horror that is Bermuda grass and the invasion of your garden by it. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com answering a question on keeping Bermuda grass from invading your garden beds. So the best answer to this is going to be a multi-pronged approach. But before we get into that, first we need to understand what we're fighting. Bermuda grass is a type of grass that sends out runners and it roots out of the internodes. So if you're somewhere you can get some Bermuda sprigs, pause this and go do it right now so you can have it in your hand while I'm talking about this. All right, so when you look at the strand of Bermuda grass, it has a stem and then it swells out to a bulge and right at that swelling, there's either another stem shooting out or a couple blades of grass or both, you know, the leaves. And that point, that swelling is called an internode or just a node, we'll call it. 
And then if you continue down the stem to the next node and the next, etc., every point on that stem where there is a node, it will root. It will send out roots. And the node is actually also a weak point, and it breaks easily right there if you're bending it or pulling on it. So if you go to pull it up, some of the stem will pull up, and wherever it's rooted securely, it'll break off at one of those nodes, and it'll leave behind rooted parts of the grass in place. And then, because it's rooted well, it'll shoot out from there again and keep growing. So... One of the ways you can actually plant coastal Bermuda hay is by spreading the hay. It's, you know, it's dry hay in a field and you crimp it into the soil where it makes good soil contact and it'll grow from there. So now that you know a little bit about the plant's physiology, now you'll be able to combat it a little better. So it's kind of a, a multi-pronged approach, like I said. And the first thing is prevention. We want to prevent this from getting worse. So first and foremost, I say a buried root barrier that's at least a foot deep. It's better if it's two feet deep. And what I mean by that is it's a physical barrier to keep it from spreading under the soil surface. So to prevent it from spreading actively into your garden space, it's probably best to use some kind of plastic um, but you could use metal or some other type of material. But just make sure that it's impermeable to Bermuda grass. I'd make sure it's sticking up a couple inches above the soil level so it's easy to keep the grass from growing up and over it. Um, next, you want to ne- make sure that you never allow it back into the garden without an immediate response. If you see it growing up and over the barrier, immediately clean it up. Cut it away from there and keep it from getting into the garden. If you let it get a foothold there, it'll grow very quickly, especially in that nice, fertile, moist soil. So as soon as you see it becoming a problem, you need to get on it. Uh, and then another point is keep grasses and hay away from the garden space. So if you're, if you're always going through a certain area with bales of hay, pick a different path. Or move your garden space because carrying hay through a garden space um, is a really bad idea, especially if it's Bermuda hay, because you're always going to be dropping little little bits of it, and you'll be dropping weed seeds from the hay. And if you drop a couple sprigs of that in there and it gets covered up with some mulch or it gets in good soil contact, it'll start rooting and growing, and you might not realize until it's well-rooted, and then it's sending out runners all over the place, and it can be a real nightmare. I'm sure you already know that. Um, the next thing, removal. Um, so first, I want to talk about physical removal. It works, but it's a lot of work, and you have to be very on top of maintenance to keep it in check if you're doing an exclusively physical removal method. That is the most organic way to do it. Um, you can keep pulling and pulling, and it will eventually give up. But most people aren't faithful enough to keep it managed like that. And the other option is not a great one, but it will work a lot quicker and cheaper from a time standpoint. Um, but first, I'll give a caveat f- uh, for everyone who's going to get upset with me. I'm going to give an herbicide solution. If leaving the Bermuda ta- to take over your, the garden causes a person to not garden and to not build soil, then we've accomplished nothing good. However, if you use a tiny bit of herbicide 
eradicate it from the garden space, and then spend the next decade building soil. And for those of you who are concerned about CO2, then you'll be sequestering carbon at the same time. Um, I think the good done by enabling someone to not only grow their own food, but to also build a ton of soil is far and above worth the tiny bit of herbicide used in the method I'm going to describe. With that said, I don't like using herbicides, but sometimes it's a tool that's the most expedient thing to achieve a good end. So you'll have to decide if you want to go this pesticide route on your own. Uh, if you want to, you can get yourself one of those fabric gloves, you know, those jersey uh, fabric gloves. They're brown or black or whatever. They're cheap, you know, those kinds. Um, I'd either cut the wrist portion off to keep it away from your skin or, or roll it down onto your, uh, you know, onto the, the palm section of the glove. You want to keep it away from your skin. Um, but you want to put that glove in a mason jar or a Ziploc baggie, something like that, and put a small amount of glyphosate concentrate, yep, into the fabric. I can hear the gasps of horror through the space-time continuum already. Uh, <laughs> get one of those packs of nitrile gloves and put a pair on and then put the soaked but not dripping fabric glove on your dominant hand and then go around to all the sprigs that re-sprouted after you physically removed as much as possible and grab them, gently wiping your hand across the whole leaf structure. This is going to apply the herbicide to only the targeted plant in the smallest dose possible and it will likely kill the grass down into the roots it probably won't work the first time 100%. So if you just go back through the garden again in a week or so and do it again and keep doing it until you kill it all, it probably won't take but a couple of times, then it's just a matter of preventing it from returning. And you can do that with physical means. So this is like a once or twice or maybe three times tiny bit of herbicide to completely kick this in the butt. Um and, you know, again, this is only using a tiny bit of the herbicide and, and the biological life in healthy sto- soils should break down the tiny bit of harm you did. So that's it. That's what I suggest. I've heard of people having success killing Bermuda in a large area by wetting it all down and solarizing for several months. And that means clear plastic in contact with soil, not black plastic, but that's another topic altogether. Uh, thanks for the question. For more info like this and on lots of topics like homesteading, homeschooling, the philosophy and thoughts surrounding liberty, and for a clean, conservative homesteading podcast, check out my website or search for the Homegrown, one word, Homegrown Liberty Podcast. That's homegrownliberty.com. Keep the great questions coming. Do good things. Okay, so um, I think everything Nick just gave you is great. And I'm not really disagreeing, but I'm going to give a, a little bit of a different take on this. Um, as far as a blocker, like a, a weed blocker, if you go down a foot, it's plenty. Um, two feet, maybe for other things. Bermuda grass, Raleigh St. Augustine grass, all these grass that reproduce rhizomes um, tend to not be very deep with – they'll have – the, the like the hair roots will go down deeper, but the actual nodes that Nick was talking about that actually are able to reproduce are actually very very shallow. They're within like the first inch or two of soil, and this will be a little bit expensive. But the best way to go about your mechanical removal process 
is go rent a sod cutter. And it'll cut down about two inches. It'll cut it completely flush. And you will see almost nothing come back from that. Cut it bigger than your garden and create some sort of a border, some sort of a physical border of a couple feet between your, 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 your Bermuda lawn and your garden. Because the bigger concern I have with Bermuda grass when I'm, if I'm worried about it is not it going under, it's going over. It will crawl right across, uh, it will crawl up and over a raised bed. I've seen, if you, you don't really stay on it, I've seen Bermuda grass go up, you know, a foot high up a raised bed and one little piece gets in there and then it's on. The other thing I've seen happen when people put raised beds in is they do a good job of weed eating around the outside of the raised bed. Well, that's fine. But in this case, even though the, the bed might be a foot deep, the, the bottom of the bed is right where the rhizomes are and they can get in there really, really easy. So that's where you do want to have that kind of buried barrier, some sort of like a hard rubber barrier would be great. So Nick and I agree on that. I think the biggest thing you can do, though, is where your garden starts uh, to where your lawn starts, you should have about a two-foot barrier, not so much in the ground two feet, but I don't know here if it's rock. I, I, I don't care what is something that where you when it, when it starts to get on it, you can easily kill it without damage anything you can, you can weed eater it whatever um it, it's it that's its main way to propagate is very shallow so and on the herbicide yeah that's i i would even say if i'm really trying to eradicate an area i don't have a problem spray spot spraying the first time to get rid of that stuff it works yeah you know, i don't know that i would go to put it on my glove and just to be that I understand why he's telling you that because he knows a lot of people go, Oh my God, you said to use that recite. Well, listen, like you can either have success or you can have misery. Those are your choices. And what we don't want to do is become dependent on these chemicals. And if you notice, this stuff wasn't even something people got out of sorts about 25 years ago, even people that were organic gardeners. They, they wouldn't have a problem with somebody, well, spraying the grass comes up between the cracks of the sidewalk with Roundup. It was when this stuff went mainstream and GMOs came out and we started applying it everywhere and abusing it that people had such an adverse reaction to it being used at all. So I have yet to use any herbicide on my property here, but I have used it in the past. Um, I, I've seen it recommended by people as, as organic, right? if you want to call it that word, or deep into permaculture, is Mark Shepard for specific applications Uh, to be done once and never again. So, so don't wind your panties up in a bunch over herbicide use. Next question here for Michael Jordan on new heat, heated beehives. Mike, take it away. Well, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company here in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and mead making. This is my question. Michael, what are your thoughts of the new patented temperature-controlled beehive? The website is www.milesapiary.com slash about. Background. I've been hesitant on considering getting started with bees. Since we have very long winters, 
with temperatures that can stay below zero for days on end. I was encouraged to see this beehive manufactured facility and is operating in my open and local area. Michael, is the design something new and unique that would give the bees climate with long hard winters a better chance? It is not unusual for us to have low temperatures 20 below or to 35 in range. We often have snow on the ground from October all the way until May. Thank you for considering my question, Sid, Northern Michigan. Well, Sid, I live in southeast Wyoming where temps in the hottest times of the summer are over 90 and the coldest times of winter are below 30. Temperature-controlled hives have been more and more in the making as no-keep beekeeping has come about. With new automated feeding, new electric vacuum hive flow systems, and computer-controlled weight and service apps, the no-keep beekeeping system has becoming more and more. The technical bulletin number 1377 from the Agricultural Research Service United States Department of Agriculture with cooperation of the Wisconsin Agriculture Experimental Station was written by Charles D. Owens and C. L. Ferrer. This was issued in November of 1967 and it talks about the technical data on better brood rearing from heated hives over the winter. From what I'm getting from your question is, are heated hives better? Well, Sid, here at AB Friendly Company, we've been testing an easy-bake oven method of keeping the bees warm. We're putting and incorporating a couple of light bulbs on a thermal cube that can regulate the temperatures in the hive if they get too low, the lights will turn on, in a heated box, kind of like an easy-bake oven, allowing the hive to warm up when it gets to a certain temperature, it shuts down. So we're working on some modifications ourselves. Uh, at many of our programs, you can see how we've made this hive modification, not only to heat the hive, but also this modification is like a secure place to hide items in your hive, like maybe some cash silver, some important documents, even a gun, kind of like how Plato and Socrates used to do. Uh, we've seen that controlling temps in the hive is very important on keeping bees. Now, many beekeepers winterize their hives. And they do so by moving the bees to barns over the winter. Some dig and cover the bees in dirt mounds. Others cover the hives with insulation wraps and stack hay bales around them to keep them warm. So the old ways are still being used and in place to keep the bees warm. I've looked at the new heat boxes being put into hives. And there's a new one that uh, we're kind of looking at too. And it's using a fish tank heater. And it seems to be doing pretty well. I've seen a couple videos on it. I'm always inclined that if it if it breaks down that the water freezes and there's some some parts with that, but I haven't seen any problems with that. So there are many uh, methods. So on your question is the design something new and unique that would give the bees a climate with a long hard winters a better chance? It's not new, and it does give the bees better chance of winning. Or we wouldn't be trying and experimenting, and and other beekeepers wouldn't be trying to experiment with things. Now on the product that you gave out. I've contacted them with no reply, and their site does not really tell anything about the heat-controlled system. Now, I do want to state that there are many things that are coming out in the beekeeping world that are old school, 
They were just too expensive to do, and most of it was just experimental. And now that people are really looking into tech stuff and are jumping right on the bandwagons, the one thing that you need to do to be a beekeeper and not a bee haver are what some of us in the bee world are calling trenders. That these trenders are just jumping in because it's a good trend. That the flow high from the honey production was actually made in 1940s by J.B. Guerrera out of Spain and still today is four times more expensive than what it would be to take and produce honey the average way. I've also stated that I'm not for against any kind of technology, but you need to be mentored in the art of beekeeping, kind of like a falconer is. Just do not jump into the trends of things, spending astral amount of money on things just to have them. So, Sid, here's what I have to tell you. Find a good beekeeper. Uh, even one that's only got like one hive. Go to a beekeeping meeting. Kind of meet other beekeepers. Kind of hear what's trending and how beekeepers actually work. Check out a honey farm or a pollination company. Investigate the art that you're looking to get into. Remembering that you'll be looking into this hive two to four times a month. That you'll need to document the hive and control the outcomes. I was just at Jackson here in the end of October of 2016, and he has a mentor that comes to his place and works with him with his bees. He has a mentor that comes with him and works with him on his aquaponics. He talks to people on trees and guild work. I myself would love to do microgreens and love to try the Curtis Stone method of growing. But I have my plate, and it's not Thanksgiving every day, so I monitor what I put on it. One cannot manage an over-full plate. So if you're getting into bees, consider getting someone to help you. Work with a partner. Make sure your five to $800 investment is worth having that one beehive because that's what it's going to take to manage it to be a good beekeeper. So I just want you to think on those notes that if you're looking to get into bees, it's not necessarily the hive that you get. It's the practical, manageable skills that you're going to use that we've been monitoring beehives for hundreds of years. We've been winterizing beehives on many techniques. And technological advancers are getting cheaper, but you have to remember that you have to learn the skill set of what you're looking at for them to work. That getting an app to tell you kind of, oh, today's a good time to check your beehive because the temperatures are this way and the hive is weighing this amount and the wind speed's going and your food levels are at this level you need to get in there if you don't know what your food that you're using to feed your bees if you're not looking in the hive and inspecting it properly looking for foul brood mites gestation brooding if you're weighing your beehive and not actually knowing what they're supposed to be weighing those apps those hives and that technological advance is not really helping you so you need to get out, read some books, watch some YouTube, interact with some beekeepers, get a mentor, and kind of figure out what you want to do before driving and getting your bees. Bees are going to be costing you anywhere from $120 to $220 just for your bees. And that depends on breeding, where your location is, shipping, the style and climate of the bee that you're going to be using, and what you're using to produce, either wax honey or pollination so there's a lot more just in the beekeeping than 
is this hive going to work for me? Would I say try it? Man, I've never tried it, but I'm trying new methods all the time. I have bee wonderlust. I have top bar beekeeping, war a beekeeping, Langstroth beekeeping, eco beekeeping, tabletop beekeeping, and I've even looked in a couple forms of increased essential beekeeping by different types of nook boxes. So I have many things that do not integrate together, which in some aspects could be a waste of money. But I am an educator, and I've traveled all over the world trying to learn different types of beekeeping just for the skill set that I want. Not necessarily be a pollinator or a honey producer, but I wanted to find out some of the best ways to keep bees to make the best nectar flow so I can make great meads. So on that note, I want you to remember, I am the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company. Buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a cottage industry because we all have to start someplace. And hey, always help your fellow man. For one day, you might need help too. Okay, so next question is for Ben Falk, and I am going to actually read the question. I think having all of the details will make Ben's answer a little more clear to you. It says, um, we're looking to purchase 40 to 100 acres of land. What should one consider when there are wetlands on the property? We're moving to Alaska, going to live with the in-laws or in our fiber until we can buy land outright. We bought a couple of acres in Kansas without any thought about soil type, aspect, contour, fail city. We're doing it right this time and looking on the Kenai Peninsula. Um, the maps have contour elevation. They have some maps for Ben to look at. They have contour elevation, you name it. Some of the lands are up to 50% wetlands, such as Kettle. Uh, the lands with wetlands are discounted. I think of Chinampas and wonder if I'm dismissing these properties prematurely. I understand the south-facing slopes are a must for our future location, but would you completely avoid a property with wetlands? Anyway, with that, Ben, take it away. Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with the Expert Council and Whole Systems Design with the question about um, wetlands and also looking to buy 40 to 100 acres of land. Um, I mean, wetlands are great, you know, in a lot of aspects. Um, they have habitat for hunting and, and food harvesting and medicine harvesting um, and just wildlife viewing and interaction in general that you, you can't find in any other, you know, um, ecosystem. Um, you know, they're really huge for wildlife. You know, some of the best density and greatest diversity of wildlife is in and next to wetlands where wetlands meet other systems. Um, so all in all, I mean, wetlands are, are, are high value, even though they're actually low value in terms of buying, because they're not, from a productivity standpoint, an economic productivity standpoint, they're pretty hard to use. Um, now, in permaculture approaches and kind of less conventional more indigenous land use approaches, there are a lot of things that can be done, but but um, they're high input, at least in the beginning, if you're going to do things like chinampa systems, let's say. I'm not recommending that, per se, in Alaska, certainly. Um, that's a system that really pr proves itself in the tropics, not that you might not get somewhere. I encourage you to, to think about it and experiment with it in, in some, a place like Alaska. I don't know of any chinampa systems in Alaska, But it certainly could have a place there, depending on, on your context. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is, is bugs. You know, you do get a lot of, of 
of mosquitoes, especially black flies, mostly mosquitoes, black flies, they all love wetlands. Black flies tend to be a little more coniferous based, which you're not going to be able to get away from up there anyway at Alaska. And mosquitoes tend to be wetland based. You're probably not going to be able to get away from wetlands, from distant from wetlands anyway, though, up there, I would imagine. Um, like around us, if you're not proximal in New England to large wetlands, like if you're at least a mile or two from a large wetland or even half a mile, you can have a really non-buggy site. But if you don't have any wetlands, yet there's a large wetland half a mile from you, you can still have a really wet, bu- a buggy site. So from the bugginess issue, I would have a hunch that you might not be able to do anything about that Could, because there's probably a lot of wetlands around you on the Kenai Peninsula of Alaska. Um, I haven't been to that part of Alaska, but I've been to Alaska in general, and it is a very buggy area for a good chunk of the year. And that's just due to the humidity and the climate there and the, the, the amount of moisture and the coniferous cover type. And so whether you have an acre of wetland or 20, that may not change that at all. Um, but all in all, lack of bugs you know, is a good thing from a health perspective and also just an enjoyment perspective. I and mean, bugs are, can be kind of a nightmare. Um, and Alaska's famous for them. So, but I think you're going to have to deal with them anyways. As far as them being on your property, I would definitely not just say forget it if there's wetlands, um, which you're bringing up that question. But I would definitely want to make sure that a bunch of my land, especially in Alaska, really, but really anywhere, would have at least a moderate slope and is well-drained. So you can do a lot of, like, easy, reliable vegetable garden food production and, and also a lot of tree production, although you'll be limited up there for sure. South-facing, yeah, N- increasingly less and less important in some of the U.S., um, continental U.S., but up in Alaska at that latitude, the Kenai, you're probably at, I don't know, upper 50s, low 60s latitude. Um, South-facing is going to be really important. So it doesn't have to be your whole property, but at least home site zone one, let's say. You at least need a few acres, I would think, of, of south-facing or Maybe even just say an acre or two. Um, more would be nice. But, um, yeah, on the wetlands piece, they're valuable. But, um, you know, I wouldn't discount based on wetlands, but I would definitely make sure, you know, you have well-drained areas well, which is going to need some significant slope in that part of the world. Um, and just make sure you have good solar access, of course. I mean, in Alaska, depending where you are, um, there's a lot of coniferous forest type and you, you know, you need to get that sun into your, to your ground and into your, to your buildings, um, to have a livable situation up there. Um, but light is the big issue more than heat, um, for a lot of things in that part of the world. Um, you know, microclimates, strong microclimate creation, you're going to become an expert on greenhouse cultivation if you're up there, depending on your goals, um, you know, the further away you get from the equator, more of a, more of the, the warm microclimate needs there are. So good luck with you. That's, um, going to be a challenging situation, I'm sure, but also we'll have a lot of opportunities. Um, so a lot of amazing things about, about that climate and there's a lot of challenges as well. Um, 
it's a tough one. It's a food storage climate even more so than we are here. And you don't get any heat to speak of in coastal Alaska. And generally, it's incredibly cloudy. So just, you know, look into it enough. Be sure you know what's involved and what you're going to get in terms of... Um, of, of results, you know, what, what people can do up there. You certainly can grow amazing things. I mean, the growing season is so long. You have so much light in the summer. So some of the biggest, you know, vegetables in the world are grown up in Alaska. Um, but good luck. Thanks a lot. I guess kind of what I would point out is, is a couple things with, with wetlands, kind of broadening it beyond the Kenai in Alaska. Cause I love Alaska, but I just, I can't see myself living there. I, I just can't personally. Um, I like to be a little bit warm, right? Um, and, and I think wetlands are something that are quite diverse in where they are. So one of the big things I would say is be very careful with buying property with wetlands on it if you have any designs on what you're going to do with it, because in many instances you could be prohibited by the department of the big department of making you sad, i.e. the federal government on well since that's wetlands you can own it and you can you know have recreation on it but you can't do certain things to it so that's a big thing and then where you are has a lot to do with how valuable wetlands are and are they are they brackish wetlands are they salted wetlands are they freshwater wetlands right so that has a lot to do I mean. You could have a property that's a brackish to saltwater wetland in in Florida that has tidal effects on it where things come in, where it could be an incredible source of fish and shellfish. Where you know if you have a inland freshwater wetland, you may not have that. And the further north you are, the the more that wetland may be less advantageous from a a, a straight foraging yield. As you move into southern wetlands, you're more in the swamps you end up with an awful lot of things that grow there. And as you move to more temperate, you have a lot of diversity as well. But as you go colder and colder and you go to more of carnivorous uh, trees, uh, less deciduous, uh, less diversity, uh, you tend to have, you know, maybe you can, I don't know, trap a few beavers a year and use the meat and fur from that, but you don't get as much uh, available from a foraging standpoint. So, with wetlands, don't write it off, but make sure you understand the impact of wetlands based on the climate type that you're in, the desires you have, and what regulations may exist. Remember, we have a scale of permanence, right? So, like, a mountain is very permanent. Like, you can't make a mountain go. If you buy a property that's on the side of a mountain, it's going to be on the side of the mountain long after you're dead. Uh, and and it's, that's about the only thing that you have to look at is a greater scale of permanence than a regulation from a government agency. You can change government regulations. Sometimes you can get things rezoned, but they're difficult, and you shouldn't ever plan that you can. So really look at the impact of regulation due to something like a wetland versus what you want to do. Uh, now, just me thinking this way. Again, I'm not really advising you on Alaska because I don't know the climate very well, but if I'm buying 40 to 100 acres, so I'm getting 100 acres and half of it's wetlands, 50 acres isn't. I... I, I Woohoo! I, I can hunt ducks or whatever. I mean, yeah, I'm not real worried about it. If I'm buying an acre and like half of it's wetlands, I have a whole different viewpoint on it. Just that's my final thoughts on that. Now let's uh, have a question for Stephen Harris on the concept of rechargeable CR one two three batteries. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question for the expert panel. I have one here from. I have one here from a lady, Heather. Thank you for writing. 
more females should write in. I you know, get a lot of questions from guys. Ladies, let's hear your stuff. Hi, Jack and Steve. We are going to be upgrading some of our holographic sights and lights from our ARs, as in AR-15s, because we're getting a crazy discount through my hubby's work and because EOTech has re- recalled some of our current equipment. We currently have rechargeable double A's on everything right now because it works with our Stephen Harris battery bank so well. That's from battery1234.com, everyone. But I see that there is now a rechargeable version of the CR123 battery. And I was wondering if you could have Master Jedi Stephen Harris, <laughs> thank you, Heather, weigh in on these things. Should we add rechargeable CR123s to our battery bank, or should we just keep on with the double A's? They're inexpensive, the double A's, and so are the chargers. So before I drop the cash on CR123s and RCR123s, I thought I would see if the math works out. I also see that there is a voltage version of 3.0, 3.2, and 3.7 to choose from. Any thoughts on any of that? Thanks in advance. Heather. Heather, yes, thank you for writing. This is something I get frequently. People ask me, Steve, where are the CR123 batteries on your 123 foresights? I want rechargeable CR123s. There aren't any rechargeable CR123s on any of the Stephen Harris 1234 battery websites because they all suck. And they suck bad. I absolutely hate CR123 batteries. I think they're expensive. I think they don't have a lot of energy in them. I think they were a gimmick by Surefire and other places to make more money because they sell millions of them to the United States government who use them in tactical flashlights, and they also sell millions of them to law enforcement. They were a gimmicky thing. It's like, oh, a new battery, finally. Okay, great stuff. Let's sell a bunch of these disposable batteries. And they are failing miserably. The CR123 battery is basically becoming like a 9-volt battery. It is a dead battery. They just are not making new things with CR123s in them. What they are is making new things that take 18650s and 14500s especially 18650 lithium-ion batteries. It is a much superior battery. It is much superior in a tactical flashlight. It is what uh, I carry with me. Uh, I carry an 18650 headlamp, an 18650 flashlight, and two spare 18650 batteries with me when I am on duty. I am trusting my life, my health, and my safety to an 18650 battery, and you can too. Now, the thing is, here's the thing. Rechargeable CR123s. Well, Steve, why can't I use these? Because a CR123 is a lithium battery, and it is, I mean, it is a lithium battery. It is a primary lithium battery. You're actually giving up ions from lithium and moving them over to another metal in order to make electrons flow. It is a disposal battery. It is 3.0 volts. 
a rechargeable CR123 or what's known as an RCR123 is 3.7 volts. So if you got a flashlight that takes two CR123s, you put in 3 volts and 3 volts and you got 6 volts going to the light. You got two RCR123s, you put in 3.7 volts and 3.7 volts, and you got 7.4 volts instead of 6 volts going to the flashlight. And especially the Surefire flashlights go, ah, I don't like this, and they blow. They blow their, their elements or they just fail to work. I do have a tactical um, CR123 flashlight that I did rely upon one time, and it does not work at all with the 3.7-volt RCR123s. It just shuts off completely. There is one company that makes a 3.2-volt RCR123. In fact, it's called an LF. P123A, like Lima, Foxtrot, Papa, 123 Alpha. If you go to Amazon and you Google, you know, Google, if you put on the Amazon search engine K2 Energy, K as in Kilo, K2 Energy, LFP123A, you will find a 3.2 volt rechargeable CR123 battery. It is about $12.95 each. This is twice the price of a regular 3.7 volt RCR123. I have them. I own them. I've used them. They do work in the sensitive flashlights and sensitive devices that do not like the 3.7 volts. They work nicely with the 3.2 volts. If anyone else says they have a 3.0 volt RCR123, they are a liar. Do not buy it. Only K2 Energy, to my knowledge, and I have searched extensively, has this out. There are 3.0 volt CR123s, 3.2 volt LFP123s, and there are 3.7 volt RCR123s. You should recharge this battery in a Night Core, N-I-T-E-C-O-R-E, D4 charger. This is on PREP, P-R-E-P, 1234.com. My favorite flashlight is the Night Core SRT5 and now the SRT6 flashlight, along with the Night Core HC30 headlamp. These both take 18650 batteries. Now, there's one thing that I talk about in my videos is some of these flashlights are what I call omni-voltage flashlights. Like an omnivore eats anything, this omni-voltage flashlight takes anything. These flashlights I just mentioned will take a single 18650 battery, or you can throw in two CR123s, LFP123s, or two RCR123s. That's right, the flashlight doesn't care if it's taking 7.4 volts, 6 volts, or 3.7 to 4.2 volts off an 18650. The flashlight goes, ah, I see a voltage. It's this voltage. I have a DC to DC voltage converter. I'm going to convert the voltage to the perfect voltage for the LED of the flashlight. I don't care what it is, and it does it. And it does it very well. So keep in mind that a flashlight on an 18650 will generally run for about three times the length 
of time as if you had the CR123s in it. So if it'll run for three hours with an 18650 in it, it'll only run for two hours with a CR123 flavor. Sorry, it'll only run run for one hour. I can't think right now. It only run for one hour with a CR123 in it, okay? CR123s are inferior. That's why I hate them. That's why I love the 18650s. If you want more on 18650s, go to prep, P-R-E-P, 1234.com, and especially get the bug out bag video at bugout1234.com because I have an entire half hour I spend in the bug out bag video covering nothing but batteries and flashlights. Actually, I think it's more than that. I think it's half hour just on flashlights. I spend even more time just on batteries. But if you want to know what you're going to have in a bug out bag and what you can entrust your life and safety and health to, then you want the bug out video. And don't forget the cell phone video at cellphone1234.com. That is the secret video that I made. That is the number one video that you will use the most in your life on a daily basis, even if you don't travel abroad and around the world, you will never, ever have a dead cell phone battery, and you will just go, ha-ha, Steve, I understand now after seeing the video. Thank you so much. You guys are always so wonderful. Please write in some more questions, especially from ladies. I love questions from ladies. And as always, you can get everything I have ever done with Jack at Stephen1234.com. Thank you so much. I My addition to this would be when I'm looking at any electronic device, I will buy devices that use special batteries if the device is so value to be valuable to me and there's no good alternative uh that I consider as as valuable that uses a standard battery but I personally am a huge fan of AA and AAA batteries and I try to buy most things that would use a smaller battery to use one of those two things and Double A is really the way that I kind of angle more than anything else. Thinking worst case scenario, there are little solar light lamps all over the freaking place, and a Phillips screwdriver is the only thing that separates you from harvesting rechargeable double A's out of them. Um, and I mean, they have gotten to be where they're everywhere. And I'm not suggesting you go lifting double A batteries from your neighbor's uh, garden. And they are kind of crappy batteries, but they are batteries. They do recharge, and they do work, and they come with their own charger. Uh, so that's like worst case, you know, that's your two is one, two is one, one is none, three is for me, four is even more. That's like your nine is fine, right? That's all the way out there, like your ninth, tenth level of, uh, you know, you've used all everything else up, but it's still there. But, I mean, the other thing is availability. I I have never gone anywhere where you can buy a battery where I couldn't buy AA and AAA batteries. Never. And, of course, end loops that Stephen Harris has taught us about. I have tons of end loop batteries and chargers. So there's always charged up, ready-to-go batteries. There's always alkaline batteries ready to go. And I just think if you can, nothing against these other batteries, and I know that we need to move forward with technology. I'm not an old fogey yet. But 
I also believe that there's probably room to continue to improve what we can do with a double-A, triple-A format of a battery uh, versus having to completely reinvent the wheel, so to speak. Um, electronics manufacturers don't like that because it doesn't incentivize you to buy new stuff and new crap. And I think Steve's dead on where CR123s, you know, and Surefire, that's, that's a, that, that, that's kind of a, a scam rolled up into one. Now, I do wonder this, because I gotta say it. Do you think Stephen Harris would like them better if they were CR1234 batteries? For those that have been around in a while, you get that joke. Anyway, with that, let's, we got a question up next for, uh, Darby Simpson on uh, raising pastured uh, pork, and specifically in wooded environments. So what could you maybe cultivate or plant within those wooded environments uh, to better provide forage for your pigs? Hello, everyone. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Don up in Maine. He is wanting to know what he can plant in the woods to uh, supplement the uh, the feed for his large black pigs. He's doing paddock shift, and he's wanting to try and cut down on the feed bill and wants to know what my thoughts are. So, Don, let me tell you, um, I, I've just kind of started experimenting with this myself uh, this late summer and, and fall of this year, actually. So uh, take everything I'm about to give you with a grain of salt because I'm, I'm really – just in the beginning stages of learning what works and what doesn't work myself. Um, I've talked to several guys that, that have tried different things and had varying degrees of success with it. And, you know, with anything, it really depends on what your specific situation is. Um, being that you're in zone four all the way up in Maine, we're probably getting to the, you know, the point of the year where you're going to have a hard time getting anything to, to take off this late. Um, but you might still have a few options. Something that I'm looking at doing actually here in the next week, because I'm, I'm just getting ready to move some pigs out of one area and into another area, is I'm going to be sowing a, uh, a mix of some, some oats. I'm probably going to try some field peas and, and maybe even some cow peas. I'm looking for things, obviously, that are, that are cold hardy and that are going to go ahead and germinate and grow a little bit and then hopefully be sitting there so that when I run my winter pigs through there, they've, they've got a little something to eat that's that's somewhat green to uh, offset, of course, the feed, number one, but to you know get some organic matter in the soil and to enhance the flavor of the pork. That's one of the main reasons I'm looking at doing this is uh, you know, the pork just tastes better when they've got you know living plant material to eat versus just pure feed. So um, earlier this summer, late summer, beginning of fall, is around the end of August, beginning of September, pretty close to Labor Day, I actually put a mix of stuff in three different paddocks um, that, that I've got here for my, my pigs. And um, I ordered uh, pretty, pretty much all the seeds I use in there, I ordered from, from High Mowing Organic Seeds, who are a, uh, they're a supporter of the show. For any, any of you that are an MSB member, you get a discount if you order from them. Uh, and we, we put in a mix of radish and turnip. I actually used a lettuce mix, believe it or not. Um, some annual ryegrass. And then I also had some uh, white clover seed here in the barn from a, a seeding project I had last year. So I put a little bit of that in there. And these three paddocks were in, in three totally different uh, states, if you will. So one area is a, it's a training corral for our pigs. It's only about a quarter of an acre. And I, I had three pigs in there that were 
getting ready to, uh, you know, make their trip to the butcher within about two or three weeks. So I put part of this mix in there, let those animals trample it in. Excellent germination, excellent growth. I mean, right now that paddock looks absolutely amazing. We've got some more pigs coming in. I'm going to start them in there and let them eat on all that green material as we're, you know, headed towards November. Um, another paddock is in the woods, very, very shaded. Okay. No leaves were down yet. Again, this is beginning of September. Put the mix out, had some germination, but not very much. And what germinated honestly just didn't do anything. Okay. Uh, the rest of the mix went into a very similar paddock that was completely shaded, had about 20 hogs in it. Okay. Uh, spread it in there while the, the pigs were in there so that they could trample it in, had pretty good germination in there, but then it like, it just didn't have enough light after it germinated to do much of anything. So I, I was kind of disappointed good friend of mine gave me a 50-pound bag of oats because it had some weevils in it, and they were using it as horse feed. And uh, he just wanted to get rid of it, and I thought, well, I'll throw it out here and see what happens. So I uh, took and put about 30 pounds of those oats in this same pig paddock just about two weeks ago. And I just noticed this week, it took it about 10 days, but I noticed that I've got really good germination with those oats. Now, some of the leaves have started to come down, so we're getting some more light into the woods, I'm seeing obviously better germination where there's more natural light hitting the ground just because of the lack of trees in certain areas. So, you know, in some, some of those edge areas where there's more sunlight coming in, we've got more oats popping up. Uh, we've got a frost coming this weekend, so I, I don't know uh, if that's going to, you know, kill the oats or not. I, I've never planted oats in the fall before. I, I don't know what to expect. Um, but, you know, I'm not out anything but a little bit of time, so we'll, we'll kind of see what happens. Um, you know, I, I think we're going to get some grazing out of that. The trick is, at least in my limited experience so far, is getting the right combination of animal impact, moisture, which is always difficult in the fall, and, and sunlight. Now the problem is I, I've got plenty of sunlight because the leaves are starting to come down. But if I go in and broadcast seeds, uh, most of those seeds are going to end up landing on, on those leaves. Um, so I think animal impact is going to be even more important. Um, and, and I think it, I think the animal impact was an, important because what I saw in the, these two wooded paddocks where I put these seeds just about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago was, you know, where the pigs were, had much better germination, uh, because they were trampling that seed down into the dirt. So we had good soil contact. So, you know, you just need to look for things that are cold hardy, uh, that are going to work in your area. Like I said, you, you've probably still got some time. You might want to look at like some quick growing radish or, or turnips or something like that that are going to, you know, shoot up really quick if you want to do this this fall. I think, I think I'm going to have a lot better success in the spring. So this spring, I'm, I'm really going to go out there and hit it hard and heavy with a variety of stuff, see what comes up. I'll have, you know, I'll have some pigs here that I can run through these paddocks. Uh, to trample the seed in, get good soil contact, see what our germination looks like, and, and kind of go from there. So I think in a few months I'll, I'll probably have uh, a lot better idea, uh, you know, to what, what I could tell you would work and, and not work at least here in, in my region. But you know, you just kind of you got to think about it, you got to plan, you kind of got to get a little bit lucky, is is what I would say so far. So anyway, I, I hope that helps you. Um, you know, look, get some seed, throw it out there. Um, it, you may be like me, you may spend 125 bucks and really not have a whole lot to show for it. 
uh, or you might get a bag of, you know, cheap stuff or, or free stuff that, that starts growing. You just never know. So throw some things out there, take good notes, uh, pay particular attention to, you know, how much moisture you've got, you know, what the coverage is on the trees, all, all those things. Put, put that into a notebook so that you can, you know, reassess when you go back through there next fall. And then I'd say do the same thing this spring, you know, take notes and see what, you know, uh, record like what works, what varieties work from where and when and all that stuff and, and start eliminating things and, and, you know, uh, and also adding, you know, varieties, uh, of, of specific plants that, that did take off for you and did work. Anyway, hey, man, Don, I hope that helps you out. Uh, good luck with it. If you have any success, please shoot me an email and let me know because this is something I'm really interested in um, and trying to do so that we can have more grazing for our pigs here. I think it's important. And, uh, you know, if anyone else has had good success with anything, Please, you know, please let me know. For the rest of you, if you'd like to learn more about me, you can do so at DarbySimpson.com. There's a lot of free blog articles out there that you can read related to all things, uh, you know, uh, to pertain that pertains with uh, raising 100% grass-fed beef, forest raised pork, and pasture poultry. If you're really into this kind of stuff, head on over to Permaculture Voices. And check out the weekly podcast that Diego Footer and I have been doing all summer where uh, he is basically following our farm as we go through the whole season. Um, and, uh, you know, we're putting out an episode every week, every Monday. It's called Grass-Fed Life. Uh, a lot of really interesting stuff if you're, you're into this, you know, type of, of uh, farming. Um, everything from, you know, how-to nuts and bolts to infrastructure, marketing, you know, insurance, farmer's markets, you name it. We've covered just about everything this season. Over 30 hours of listening. So head on out. Check that out. Let me know what you think. Hope you enjoy it. Hope it's helpful. As always, everyone, thanks for sending these questions in. Keep them coming. I really do enjoy getting some information out there to hopefully make your farming adventures more successful. As always, have a wonderful weekend and take care. So, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with all of that. I, I think that, like, if you were trying to get, like, like this understory pasture thing going on so that maybe you could bring animals in there right before – The trees leaf out because even if you get it to grow through winter, right? As soon as the trees leaf out, that stuff's going to start to to dwindle really quick as it gets shaded out. But you've got, you know, from now where you get your leaf drop heavy all the way through winter and early spring when you're just getting bud out, where that could be then grown and grazed. And some of the things that spring to mind for me that would work. Darby mentioned oats, one of the cheapest cover crops you can buy is white Caius oat. And I've grown that as far north as central Arkansas, and we had days that it got down below 10 degrees. Not a lot of them, but some, and it didn't grow really fast during those cold periods, but it never blinked. It never blinked. It didn't get any frost damage. It didn't care. Uh, probably your most cold-hardy crop you can grow uh, that's kind of a cover crop, pasture crop, is Merced Rye. That's extremely cold hardy. Those would be two that I would look to. As far as like turnips, turnips are pretty cold hardy. Um, but whether you have enough time to get enough size on them, uh, it depends on your climate and whatever. But I think Darby's dead on. You got to kind of balance this. So if you seed too early and you got those moist, wonderful conditions in the forest, right, your wooded areas, you're going to get germination and then the plants are going to fizzle out. If you seed too late, 
then you definitely need to have animals in there to get that soil contact or do something to do that. Um, and then you have to kind of time your animals to get them in there long enough to get that done and get them out. But I think if you kind of figure all that out, you can do really well. I mean, I guess the other thing you could look at is what are mast crops. You can go in and create glades. So a glade is just an opening in a forest and plant more hardy, woody perennials. And then you have something to, to put animals on late in season. Uh, you know, your nut crops and all are obvious, but things like persimmon. Uh, persimmons are very hardy. They grow very fast. They're very uh, productive. And they'll start dropping some as soon as they get ripe, but they'll drop for months. So that's another way to look at that type of thing. Or, you know, your early season, like mulberry and things like that, and then you can run them through uh, and, and clear things out in the spring at a lower level, and they can, you know, harvest all that. But hopefully that helps. I think, you know, combining those two viewpoints, maybe you can come up with some stuff that works for your situation. But uh, mainly people tend to graze woodlands with pork, in the fall when you have your mass drop um, and, and use a natural mass-producing woodland like acorns and chestnuts and things like that to, to get that done. Uh, next is a question for Gary Collins on seeds versus grains uh, versus nuts in the world of paleo nutrition. Take it away, Gary. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and we have a paleo question, a grains, seeds, and nuts question. Oh, from Seth, he's a little confused on this, and this is actually pretty common. Um, the paleo diet can get kind of confusing, and primal's different from paleo, so there are some nuances there. But his question is, what's the difference between grade seeds and nuts, and why are they a no-go on the paleo diet? Well, Seth, actually only grains are a no-go on the paleo diet. Seeds and nuts are okay. And the reason why that... Grains are a no-go are three primary reasons. Well, there's actually, yeah, there's more, but there's four. Let's stick with four. The, the first main one is that the modern grain today has been uh, genetically modified so much and changed. And I'm not talking by, you know, crossbreeding and we're talking genetically altered through, through science that that the grain is no longer what it used to be. Like wheat is one of the typical ones. You know, wheat from a hundred years ago compared to today is night and day. It's totally different. Um, that's where uh, dwarf wheat came from was genetic modification of, of, uh, of wheat. So it has a heck of a lot more gluten, which gluten is an inflammatory in our digestive system and can cross the blood brain barrier and cause a whole host of issues as far as premature dementia, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, neurological disorders, migraines, uh, chronic headaches. So that is kind of one of the main things right there, especially wheat, uh, the gluten, gluten grains, you know, wheat, barley, rye. And then they get into the other grains that they say, you know, are gluten free and are okay, but those aren't, still aren't paleo. Grains, period, are off. But the problem with trying to dabble with grains is, yeah, technically they may not have gluten. But what they have is what, what they call gluten derivative. The molecular structure is just slightly off. So it's not technically gluten, but it has a lot of similarities and reacts in the body in, in a similar fashion. So that is probably one of the main reasons. And then phytates and lectins, which are chemical components that actually um, 
they, they, they inhibit the absorption of micronutrients and also cause gut inflammation. So that's where it gets into this. Was the modern human really technically designed to process grains? And on the paleo side, they, they say absolutely not that we were never really adapted and we haven't been consuming them long enough for our digestive systems to alter themselves, alter it itself in order to adapt to grains. And not only that, but you throw in the fact that they've been genetically modified over the last hundred years. So they don't even look like what they looked like a hundred years ago. There's no way our digestive system's going to catch up. So that is that reason. Um, seeds and nuts, long as you eat them in, uh, moderation they're fine that's they're paleo they're primal not a problem um now as far as you know you talk about wheat and corn as grains and and those are definitely a no-go on paleo and corn is a pseudo grain so that's where it gets a little tricky and the, the easiest way to remember this is seeds well grains come from a grass plant so if it looks like a grass plant that's where grains come from seeds are inside a fruit or vegetable Nuts are encased in usually a hard shell. That's the easiest way to remember these. And they all do the same thing. They grow another plant. I mean, that's what they, or tree, that's what they do. Um, so with, to make them edible on the primal side, we say, you know, not everyone has an intolerance to grains. Do I recommend that you consume them all the time? No, but on occasion, it's okay. It's not going to kill you. Um, and you can get in, there's a lot of different, philosophies on that some you know hardcore paleo people say absolutely no grains ever i'm more of moderate on that and you know there's ways you can do it you can either soak them um and what you do by by soaking the grains is you soak them for 24 hours you got to put like vinegar or lemon juice in there you got to put an acid to break up those the phytic acid and lectins and get those chemicals that are actually on on the grain in order to protect it so and that's not to say that, that, that seeds and nuts don't have protective uh, chemicals. They do as well, but not in the same amount as grains. So you could soak them overnight, rinse them off real good, and then you know prepare them how you usually do. Or you can actually ferment them and, or sprout them, either or, fermenting or sprouting. And fermenting you know, is just like making alcohol you know, uh, kombucha, it's the same kind of process. Sprouting, you soak them until they actually sprout, which breaks the outer layer of that grain and the, it breaks down all the protective chemicals in there that are harmful to our gut. And actually, they are, they are more nutritious sprouted uh, because it's actually grown and it, and it actually changes the chemically the from an energy source to a plant growing source. So it has a chemical change in it that makes it actually more nutritious, primarily getting rid of those chemical protections. So I hope that answers your question. It, it is when you get into the, the whole grain seeds and, and nuts debate, especially on the grain side, uh, it get, it gets complicated. And the easiest thing is for people who have a lot of digestive issues, leaky gut syndrome, um, uh, I, I definitely recommend you avoid grains, Crohn's, irritable bowel. I've had great, great success by taking people off grains and actually solving those issues. So again, if you have any questions, just hit it up in the comment section. Thanks a lot, guys. 
So, like, what I'll add to that, one of the things you have to realize when you look at something like paleo, when you're looking at it specifically for the purpose of weight loss, a lot of us say calorie. you don't have to count calories. And you don't, but in some ways you have to think about them. So one of the things that, that, that makes a nut an amazing food is it's an incredibly dense energy battery, right? Nuts have a great deal of protein and fat and oil in them, and that's, that's a good thing. However, I, I want you to think about your Paleolithic ancestor that finds a, uh, uh, a forest, and inside that forest is, uh, naturally growing uh, almonds, right? the predecessor of the almond, and it's it's an edible almond, or uh, a walnut, a black walnut. Well, black walnut's a good one. We'll just go with black walnut. That's beautiful, because that's a, that's a very ancient tree. That tree's been around a long time. It hasn't been improved much by man. It's very much a paleo nut, that, or a hickory, right? A hickory, uh, something like that. Those are the kind of nuts I want you to think about. And you find a whole bunch of these things. What do you got to do to get the nut out? You gotta find a rock and another rock and beat the shit out of them and pick little pieces out and eat it and it's still a very highly dense nutrient battery and you can bet that ancient man would have used nuts in his diet. There's no doubt about that. Now I want you to think about going out to the store and buying a one pound bag of walnuts, black or Carpathian, I don't care, or almonds or uh, pecans, which would be kind of uh, a more modern version of the hickory, but there's wild pecan out there. It still takes a lot of work to get them out. But you're going to sit down now, and you're going to be all paleo, and you're going to eat a bowl of walnuts and pecans, and you're going to like take a look at your carb count, because there's a little bit of carbs there. You're going to keep your carbs down so your blood sugar doesn't spike. You're still eating a buttload of freaking calories. And if you're doing that constantly all the time, you can put enough calories in you to circum, you know, to, to, to cut off your weight loss. And this is different than doing it with fatty meats. Okay. Like a good piece of grass fed beef or whatever. It's, it's, I, I don't know exactly why. Maybe it's kind of the sweet taste. Maybe it's kind of leaning toward the whole grain thing or something and the, and the, the, the texture. But it's way easier to big time overeat snacking on nuts than it is with a piece of steak or lamb or venison. When you eat meat, it tends to be self-limiting. And that's why a lot of people in the paleo world tell you you don't have to really count calories because you're only going to eat so much. And if you're eating vegetables and meat and, and good things like that, you're only going to eat so much meat. And I noticed like when I didn't worry about carbohydrates and paleo and all, and I would eat like a, a baked potato with a steak, And then like a vegetable, I would eat the whole steak, right? I had more food and I'd eat the whole steak. When I took the potato away, there was always some leftover steak. When you put that starch in there, it triggers this survival instinct to consume carbohydrates when they're available. And therefore you actually eat more of everything. With nuts, it seems to cause that to happen for many people, and they're just easy to be mindless about, right? So just be careful when you say you can have seeds and nuts. Sure you can, but consider your quantities. Factor them into your diet and make little packs, right? So I have no problem going out and buying, like, I buy five-pound bags of almonds, uh, not almonds, uh, walnuts, because I like walnuts. But I don't sit down with, like, a 16-ounce jar of alm uh, walnuts and start eating them. What I'll do is I'll measure out a set amount, 
And then I'll take that wherever I'm going, or I'll sit down and eat it, or I'll make it my part of my, you know, I'll measure out a set amount and throw them on a salad. I, I don't sit down with a tub of almonds or a tub of walnuts or a tub of pecans because you can overeat with them. Just kind of my addition to that. Next question is for Jeff Lawton on the proper use of a subsoiler. Here we go. Take it away, Jeff. Next question, and this is definitely, um, I'll get the name right this time. This is JR. And um, Jeff, uh, he says, please tell us what, why, and how of using a subsoiler. Um, if you had compacted grass pasture that you uh, were not going to put trees growing or swells, tree growing swells on, uh, could you turn it, turn your uh, mark, your contour lines and spacing and use a subsoiler instead um, and help hydrate the landscape? Well, you sure could. It is a matter of going into it slowly. Um, if, if necessary, if it's really long, weedy pasture, it's, it's better to slash it first if you can't graze it right down because it's too weedy maybe. And slash it down, you'll get a cleaner cut with your with your um, um, subsoiler. Mark out on contour. Go down to a depth that your tractor can handle it. And uh, over one or two seasons ripping down at the right time you can go down three inches six inches uh, 12 inches right down to 18 inches and what you've done you've absorbed the moisture uh, you let more air into the into the pasture you've adjusted the pH you've moderated the temperature you've allowed a larger diversity of, of pasture grasses to grow and generally you improve the situation no end. It has to be done at the right time. It has to be done accurately. It has to be done with the right size tractor paired up with the right size um, plow. It has to be done with the right plow so you get nice sharp cuts. The Yeomans is the main instrument people talk about. But chisel plows generally is the terminology. It doesn't have to be a Yeomans, but Yeomans are very accurate, very sharp, more expensive. But it's a, 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 a general technique to relieve compaction. And if you make mistakes with uh, compacting, you can, you can come again and physically and mechanically relieve the situation to your advantage. Um, but ideally, uh, you don't have to keep subsoiling. And um, you can allow some um, hangover forage or graze off forage into your pasture regime which um, will have fungal connections to the root net to the advantage of the pasture itself at times because they hold moisture and bring nutrients to the trees which then um, the cows graze off um, as an extra um, food forage but also uh, minerals and, 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 and wildlife um, uh, nutrients come into the tree system which trickle down through your pastures when they're, when, when they're um, designed as components of pasture. So um, great tool, great system, works wonderful, all part of the permaculture system um, and um, you can't go too far wrong if you've got the right equipment 
and you are looking to being just off contour or running downhill, uh, uh, not running downhill too fast. So two degrees, two percent fall from the valley out to the ridge, or more or less on contour if you're just on the side of the hill. Okay. I want to talk to you about a guy I met recently that used uh, a subsoiler as part of what he was doing. And uh, I can only say so much because this guy doesn't want to like go public yet, even though he's been doing this for like 10 years. He feels like he's not ready. But um, he's growing five different crops, and really it's closer to 10 because each strip is either 16 or 18 feet wide. I don't remember. And he's growing grains and grasses and, and clovers and, and, and things like that. And the farm he bought was so bad that when he went down to do some paperwork at the office, the girl that helped him the paperwork said, I was wondering who was stupid enough to buy that farm. It was just awful. And he did do some plowing initially just because he had to um, to get the crops in the ground. But now what he does is he'll, he'll harvest the crop, he'll cut the crop, whatever, depending on whatever it is. And then he'll run a subsoiler and it's like eight, passes to each strip something like that so i think it's 16 feet in every two feet and he's mostly on contour he's following the basic contours of land he's not a hundred percent on contour so that the so because you're doing you're doing row cropping here in a unique way and you need to be able to run a tractor through there two passes and do your harvest or your cut or your seed or whatever and the land never stays bare so it's kind of like Fukuoka in a way, uh, Masanobu Fukuoka, the, the, the natural way of farming, except he's doing more of a, a row cropping. So a one crop will, will be planted, let's say, buckwheat. It'll be harvested for grain. Uh, all of the, the green matter will be left behind. It's choked out the weeds. That was a summer crop. Maybe that strip now is going into uh, emmer wheat. Uh, and that, that, that'll go down on top and be a winter crop and it'll go into maybe corn or clover or something next cycle. And these five, it's five strips for each group. So we have crop one, two, three, four, five, and they swap based on the seasonality. And since he's plowed that one time 10 years ago in the area under cultivation, he's never plowed again. He's subsoiled with a subsoil. It's like a, single thing that goes in and cuts one furrow, and you go back and forth on these strips. The soil was dead. I mean, this farm had been just abused for a 100 years, plowed, you know, fence post to fence post, conventional plowing, um, just dead. And they'd given up and walked away because it wouldn't grow anything anymore. And it sat there. It was compacted. Using a subsoil in this approach, he said recently he sent off a soil sample to whatever place you do that. And he got a phone call from a guy and said, what are you doing? You're going to get in trouble. And he said, what the hell are you talking about? I'm getting in trouble. He said, you, you can't plow up native prairie. It's all protected now. The guy says, well, why do you think it's native prairie? He goes, because it's over 3% organic matter. They thought they were looking at native prairie soil. He's been cultivating it for 10 years, growing row crops using subsoiling and crop rotation. So subsoiling can do some amazing things. And I look at my property and just go, it's so sad that I can't do that here because I'll never get it down five inches here because there's rock. And you can't subsoil rock. I haven't made, I haven't made anything that does that yet anyway. Uh, last question for the day is for me, and it's really a comment that came in on the blog. And uh, it's, it's something that I thought really made a salient point that I really have never picked up on. But I'll read the comment. It comes from Linda, and Linda says, Jack, 
With reference to your opening, this is from episode 1885, Developing the Skill of Self-Leadership, which I got a lot of really great feedback from a lot of you guys on it. It said you really needed to hear that episode. Uh, but she says, Jack, with reference to your opening remarks about Americans abdicating the responsibility for personal leadership, I've noticed the increasing shift in referring to the president as commander-in-chief in non-military context. A particularly glaring example came this week in a story about Obama as commander-in-chief comforting the White House staffers dismayed by the election. Something tells me it wasn't the Marine Guards weeping in the halls. The armed services of, armed services of necessity have commanders and thus a commander-in-chief. For civilians to think of the president as their commander-in-chief is to say we need to be told what to do. Is this shift in language also related to the militarization of police? I'd be interested in what you think. By the way, my dad was a career Army doctor. The difference between civilian and military context was very clear to him. Um, this is a very important point, and I, I do think, for a variety of reasons, doing this is dangerous. I think it's it's very akin to what happened with people's mentality with something as simple as our money system and supply when we went from having you know fictitious figures on our money uh standing liberty walking liberty right uh the peace dollar we had these these coins in America's past in our currency in America's past they had entities that were non-existent they were representations of something And along the way, we got the idea, let's, let's put our dead presidents on there, right? So we went from honoring the concept of liberty to honoring the leadership of a president or a founding father, in the case of Benjamin Franklin, by putting people, actual real people, on the money. And I think a lot of our founders would have flipped their shit. I think if George Washington knew that he was going to end up being placed on the most used piece of paper money in America, he would have flipped his wig, literally, right? That, like, you don't do that. It's just not done. And I think that's what's beginning to happen with this whole commander-in-chief thing now. And I think it is wrapped up with police um, and militarization of police. And I think that's being done by... So we've lumped military and law enforcement in, and I guess I'm guilty of it myself in a way with uh, uh, the, the discount that I do. I see military, law enforcement, police, you know, Peace Corps, but I also have the Peace Corps in there, right? I have firefighters. I have paramedics, right? So, like, I think I'm pretty clear that I'm talking about people that are, that are doing service, but we have so glorified the military in our society, and we've, we've gone beyond glorifying the military of going, oh, this man saved 20 people or this generation you know, freed Europe from the Nazis to every... It's the same shit with, with teachers, right? Every teacher's a hero. Every soldier's a hero. Every airman's a hero. And because of that, people like to feel good about themselves. So then we go in and we start militarizing our police force. We give them bearcats. We get them all this, this riot gear. We, we come out with grants where every... Uh, police officer on the street can go out and get an AR and get part of it paid for, uh, even though it's their personal weapon they get to keep. I know that for a fact from multiple law enforcement officers that they've had that opportunity. Um, and we start a hero worship of law enforcement, and we, we connotate that with you know keeping us safe like our soldiers. And therefore, the police are all too happy to embrace it because it feels good when people admire you. 
then we as a society start looking at the police and the military and our president and, well, he's in charge of all this. Well, he's not in charge of the police because the police are civilian. The police are not military and they're not supposed to be. And in fact, constitutionally, our military is prohibited from basic police operations within our country. It's not legal, for instance, for the president to say, well, I've had enough of these drug houses in Chicago, call in the regular army and send them into Chicago and say, go bust all the drug houses. Because that's a law enforcement activity. It's not what our military is supposed to do constitutionally. But we start looking at it as though it is, because now the cops look like military, and in many instances our police look... You know, like if you showed a picture of a, a military force and a, a, a police force, it'd be hard to tell if you had the backgrounds flipped around who was who. And then the people start to look at all of this and they start to say, well, he's our commander-in-chief. He's our commander-in-chief. No, he's not your commander-in-chief, dumbass. If you don't serve in the military, he's not your commander-in-chief. If you're in the government but not the military, he's not your commander-in-chief. I served under two presidents where they were my commander-in-chief, George H.W. Bush and William Jefferson Clinton. And while I disagreed with a lot of the politics from both of these guys, as a soldier, I said, that's my commander-in-chief. And if an order came from there or anywhere between him and me that was constitutional and, and wasn't unethical, and you are, whether you believe it or not, in the military you are trained to disobey unlawful or unethical orders. If it doesn't jive with Geneva and Hague, if it's, if it's not anywhere specific, it says you can't do that, but you, any reason, this is the standard. Any reasonable person would see this action is immoral, even in time of war, you disobey it. But if it was legal, then that's what you signed up for. And because you changed your mind, tough shit. When you're done with your service and you, they give you a discharge, then you're done with your shit. Until then, unless it's illegal or immoral, you obey the orders of those in your chain of command, and it stops with the President of the United States. And in June of 1993, my obligation to do that ended. At that point, the President of the United States was a President of the United States, but no longer my Commander-in-Chief. Thinking any other way is dangerous. Because it assigns the same power to you as a civilian that the president has over a soldier. In other words, when I was in the Army, and I think people don't realize this, no matter what your job is, if they say, oh, okay, well, we're going to go invade this country and you're going to support the invasion even if you're not military, it's not optional. If you're told to do something, again, if it's not immoral, right, and it has to be immoral specifically, it can't be like, well, I think it's immoral to go to war. Well, you shouldn't join the military. That's not, that's not what I mean. I mean, like, somebody says, oh, go shoot that family over there cowering in a corner. It's both illegal and immoral. I'm not doing it. And I'm actually going to object to you doing it. I'm going to try to prevent you from doing it. I'm going to report it, right? That's the type of thing I'm talking about. But imagine a civilian population that looks at our president as their commander-in-chief, the way that the military would. If the president says you have to do something, you do. Even with the even with the clause of unless it's immoral or illegal, and and we have two sides of that. One, we have a population because of a bunch of dumb sheep, and then when the dumb sheep don't have the right wolf in charge, not my president, not my president, not my president. 
Could it be that those people, because they've assigned so much power in their head to the presidency that's not there, believe that the president can tell them what to do, and that's why they feel the need to be running around, turning shit over, setting cars on fire, smashing windows, and sound like a bunch of spoiled brat little children going, not my president, not my president. I'll tell you for a matter of fact, since I have awoken up politically, I haven't felt like any of these people are my president. But I don't run around going, yeah, my president, like a dumbass, like a freaking spoiled, rotten dumbass, you know, and damaging other people's shit for it. But the problem is those people probably felt that way about Barack Obama because they liked him. It was okay. A republic is to be a nation of citizens, not subjects. Where every, and I've said this before, we even have a patch for it in the gear shop, every citizen is a sentinel, one that keeps watch, one that every person in this country, no matter who's president, if the president ends up being a guy you grew up next door to that you would trust with your life, that you, you find is beyond reproach, the minute he becomes president, as a citizen of a republic, everything he does should go under a microscope. You should say, is this, is this, is this constitutional? Is this legitimate? Is this reasonable? Is this good for the country? How much is it going to cost? Who's going to pay for it? Every single thing. Every single thing anybody in our government, but especially our chief executive does, we as shareholders in the republic should question. That doesn't mean we reject everything that they do out of spite, but we should at least ask the question. Well, let me explain something to you. Unless it's clearly immoral or illegal, when you are in a chain of command in the military, you don't question. You don't say, oh, well, Sergeant, before I follow your order to take that hill, um, did we consider the total potential loss of life before we made that order? What is the long-term ramifications of failure and success? I'm taking, like, we don't, you don't do that shit in the military. Unless it's your job. Like, if you're a general and you're given a command by a higher-up general, you may push back a little bit to make sure you're taking care of your men, but in the end, you carry out the order. As a civilian, we don't carry out orders from anyone in government. In fact, the, the government can take its orders as a civilian and shove it up their ass. They are there to serve us, not to lead us. And if you see someone going, well, he's our commander-in-chief, really, what branch of the military are you in? Because let me tell you something about the military and how it views people that think like think like with sports team mentality, right? We won, right? Like or we lost, right? When like your 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 football team, your Dallas Cowboys team, you're like, well we won this week. And the team's fine with that. When you're when somebody's in the army and they're getting freaking shot at and they're like, well we won. You weren't there. You're not we. We appreciate your support, but you're not we. So we don't have an R. The, 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 my commander isn't your commander. And think of how ridiculous it would be if we, if we came down just a little bit in the chain of command. So in Panama and Honduras, I was part of what was, was called U.S. Army Southcom, U.S. Army Southern Command. The highest ranking officer in that command was General Jolin, four-star general, really great leader, really great guy. And I never received a direct order from General Jolin. General Jolin's never said, Private Spirko, I need you to, you know, I mean, I certainly would have done it, but 
my pay grade and where I was in, in the command was pretty far off. I met the man twice in the two years that I was there. I actually met him, was able to shake his hand and speak to him. But yet he was my commander. He was my theater-level commander. All right? Now, let's say I wasn't in Panama. Let's say I was in Georgia. And whatever piece of that falls under command, and let's say General Jolin had that job, right? U.S. Domestic Command, I guess, whatever. And you said to me, well, he's our commander. He's our commanding general. And you are, uh, uh, I don't know, you, you sell hopscotch kits for a living or something like that. You've never been in the military. You wouldn't do it. It's preposterous. You wouldn't share, say that we share him as a commander in our chain of command because you don't have to do, he, he, no matter what he says, you don't have to do dick all to please him. Except, I mean, maybe martial law, if you're told there's a curfew and uh, they put him over the, the, the guard, the National Guard that's enforcing it, well, then you end up in there by proxy, right? But you, you don't obey his commands. If General Jolin comes up to us, he's probably retired by now, but let's say a general, four-star general, comes up to anybody in the military under general military authority, gives them an order, they're going to do it. If he gives you an order, you're only going to do it if it makes sense to you. Like, get off the road because there's going to be a fire here or something. Like, oh, okay. Or I want you to, a general can come up to you and go, hey, you're out of uniform. Correct that. If you're in the military, you say, I'm sorry, sir, and you correct that shit fast. If a general in the Army came up to you right now as a civilian, to me right now as a prior service soldier, said, hey, soldier, you need to get, you know, we have uniform of the day and you need to get a soft cap on you, you can piss off. That's not my job, and it's not your job to tell me what to do. You go worry about your soldiers. And the media is trying to tell you, and society is trying to tell you, that because the military and you share your chief executive, Barack Obama, soon to be Donald Trump, in the form of a chief executive, that he's also your commander-in-chief. He is not your commander-in-chief any more than a random sergeant or general or lieutenant or colonel or anything else you can come up with in any branch of service has any authority over you from a military standpoint. And yes, it matters. Yes, it matters in a society where all we keep saying to government is, fix our shit for us. What do I get? What do I get? You don't get shit except the right to go out and pursue your dreams. And if you fail, you get failure. And if you succeed, you should get you should get success. And the government should be there, if at all, to protect your right to success and your right to keep what you succeed and earn. If you do so ethically and morally, you should be left alone with your success. You should be told what to do by government. And I don't even mean that as an anarchist. I mean in the context of this question. Governments might set up laws and regulations that have to be complied with. But they don't tell you how to live. They don't tell you what to do. Not my president. That's because those idiots think the government is supposed to tell you what to do. And they're all fine with it as long as the people they think should be in charge are in charge. And this is one of the things that screwed up our country probably more than anything else out there. In addition to the failure of individual leadership. The belief that government can do anything as long as you agree with it. Any power that any branch or member of our government is entrusted with, if you wouldn't be comfortable with a person 100% opposed or 100% in opposition to who they are, if you wouldn't take a candidate and say they disagree on every single thing and I'd still be comfortable with that person having that power, then neither should have the power.
because you're not getting it. Net money president. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm not overjoyed with it either, but what this has shown us is how far we've fallen as a people, how far we've fallen as a nation, and how I think I thought about this recently. It was almost 20 years ago. I've been uh, with my nephews 20, so 15 years ago. Five years old playing basketball. And I walked up to my sister-in-law and said, how are they doing? Because we went to see his game and we got there late. I said, they're doing pretty good. I said, who's winning? She goes, oh, nobody's winning. What? Well, no, they don't keep score. It was the first time in my life I'd ever been to a sporting event where nobody kept score. I said, what do you mean? Well, they just want them to have fun and learn the game. And my son, just a few years older than my nephew, six years, seven years older than my nephew, had played basketball, you know, at that age too, five, six, seven years old. They kept score. So this had just happened, at least where I was. And I said, you know what? We're going to suffer in the future for this. And of course, I'm a, I'm crazy Uncle Jack, right? Just let them have fun. Don't worry about it. You're seeing that fruit come home all over right now. Not my president, our commander in chief. We're all googly eyed. He's our commander in chief because I like him. But this one's not my president. How about you stand up and lead yourself and maybe you'll worry a little bit less about who's president and never give authority to somebody they haven't earned. Never give authority to somebody they haven't earned or that they are not entitled to. And no member of this government is entitled to command you unless you willingly take an oath of service. And don't disrespect the men who do by inferring that you stand equal with them in that sacrifice, because you do not. You do not. With that, if you enjoy this show, you can support us by joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about that. And uh, you can see all the great companies you get discounts from. You can sign up. I do take cash check uh, money order by U.S. Snail Mail. Also, do entertain offers of barter for one year or longer membership. Uh, the easiest way and the way most people sign up is to use PayPal online, and you can basically use your PayPal account to pay. That's the easiest way uh, for most people. And also do take Bitcoin. I had uh, two people uh, sign up with Bitcoin yesterday. I love Bitcoin, so I'm happy to, uh, to let you sign up with that. Just go click on Members, scroll to the bottom, you'll see the different links to sign up the different ways. And again, um, if you have recently expired as a member and you'd like to come back, I have a special deal for members who have expired. Just put TSPC return in the subject line. Send me an email at jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com, and I'll tell you what that special deal is. Also, I do give discounts to military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. If you want that discount, you need to email me before, not after you join. Send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and put service discount TSPC or TSPC service discount in the subject line. Remember, whenever you email me for anything, TSPC in the subject line. We'll make sure I can dig it out of the spam box if it ends up in there. With the volume of email I get, I need all the help I can get to make sure I get back to all of you. A little quick note there. If you email me about something, and it's like if it's a question for the show, it may or may not get on. I'm sorry, I just can't do them all. But if you email me something you think, like, this is something Jack could probably at least give me a quick answer to, and like two days go by and, and you don't hear back, email me again. Even with the TSPC, I miss some things time to time, guys. I am a human being. I am flawed. Um, next up, the other way you can support us is by doing your Amazon shopping through TSPAS. 
tspaz.com. And uh, that is tspaz.com. Go there. And uh, there'll be a link. You can click, go on over to Amazon and uh, do your shopping. Buy whatever you're going to buy. Do your Christmas shopping through tspaz.com. Doesn't cost you anything. Doesn't really take any longer. And you support the show. I also have an item up for review every day. Today I'm kind of building on yesterday. I had the uh, fermentation crocs uh, on for review. Today I have my favorite book on making fermented vegetables. It's called Fermented Vegetables. It actually has a pretty long subtitle. It's Fermented Vegetables, Creative Recipes for Fermenting 64 Vegetables and Herbs and Krauts Kimchis, Brine Pickles, Chutneys, Relishes, and Pastes. And it is by Kristen and Christopher Shockey. And uh, there's some really great recipes in there. Here's some of my favorite ones that I've tried out of it. Garlic scape paste. Garlic scape paste. Fermented horseradish. <laughs> if, you try, if you like horseradish and you make fermented horseradish, you'll never, ever use that creamy white crap in a bottle ever again. Basil paste. Cherry bombs. You might think they're made with peppers. They're actually made with cherry tomatoes. Celery mint salad. Good, guys. Trust me. Fresh fennel kraut and an incredible tomatillo salsa. Those are all available in that book. It has been reviewed over 300 times. It has 4.5 stars. It's about 16 bucks for the hard copy, but if you're a Kindle user, you can get it for only $2.51. Yep, $2.51. I got the Kindle version. I love Kindle books. I'm trying to like figure out what to do with the hard copy books I still have. I, I try to do everything electronically now. But this is one, if you're kind of like the cookbook type, you probably would want the hard copy of. You can uh, check it out. And i got to say, fermented foods has been a huge part of me recovering my health over the years uh, after having, you know, in the corporate world, just letting myself go to a ridiculous level of unhealthiness. Um, fermented vegetables and things like yogurt cheese. I try to eat a little bit of that at least every week. Build up those good gut bacteria, improve your digestion processes. It's it's really a great thing to do. So this is a good book if you don't want to, you know, expensive materials or whatever, you want to use the jars and stuff, like I said, you can do that. It works. It, it's, it, it works just fine, really. Just, you know, the Crocs do a little bit better job, in my opinion. But, a, you know, a $2.50 book can help you start that journey. And it'd be a great thing to start looking at now. So as you go into the new year, and you're like, I'm going to be more healthy in 2017, start now. You want to be more healthy in 2017, start now so that that resolution actually means something. Hit the ground running. And fermented foods is a great way to do that. Next up, you can also support our entire community by doing some of your shopping through the TSP business directory. These are all companies of members of the TSP audience. Today's supporting member is Vibly. They are a rights-managed stock photography company listed to TSP business directory. If you need photos for your upcoming book or website, check them out in our directory. Again, they're Vibly. That's V-I-B-B-I-L-Y dot com. That brings us to our closing segment, our song of the day. And, you know, sometimes I take you guys way back, the 60s, the 70s. I mean, that's some some of the greatest music ever written, in my opinion, was was done and performed. But today, we're only going to go back 16 years to the year 2000, and we're going to stick with the country music genre to finish out this week. And a guy we really haven't heard much from lately, uh, Travis Tritt. He was around long before 2000. This is one of his later releases. But I decided I wanted to leave this week on a really upbeat note, and... 
I think a lot of the things that we're doing out there in this world, guys, uh, the, the homesteading, the entrepreneurship, all the things we're doing, instead of just defensive preparedness, which I think is really, really important. I think it's important to have food stored. I think it's important to have you know energy backup sources in case your power goes off. I think it's important to have a means of defense and all this stuff. But I think the best thing that, that's come out of this community over eight years together is this, this proactive apathy, which is basically offensive preparedness. Instead of waiting for something to go wrong, we're going out and making something go right. So when something goes wrong, we're in a better position. And that takes the right attitude. I got an email from a guy this week. Holy crap. I mean, holy crap on a cracker. Some of you know where that's from, right? So holy crap on a cracker. This guy, uh, he, he writes me about all this stuff, and it's like, this guy must have been binge listening to Archives of Alex Jones or something. And I just emailed him back and said, Keep listening and step off the ledge, right? And he sends me this email back, and we're listening to all these podcasts, including yours, and on and on. And something about the, 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 when you play Obama saying uh, hope and change backwards, it sounds like thank you, Satan, or whatever. Holy crap on a cracker. Wow. And I emailed him back and said, just keep listening and step off the ledge. It's going to be okay. And that's what we need to have. We need to have this positive freaking attitude. So what could be a better positive attitude than waking up in the morning and saying, it's a great day to be alive. I think every day is a great day to be alive because please tell me what the alternative is. You can either have a day where you're alive or a day where you're taking a dirt nap with the worms. I'm not done yet. I got a lot of shit to get done yet. As long as I can fog a mirror, as long as you can fog a mirror, your mission in life is not done. It's a great day to be alive. And with that, it's going to be a great weekend to be alive. If you make it one, go out there and conquer shit, get shit done. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. plan to shave and it's a goofy thing, but I just got to say, hey. I'm a doing all right. Yeah, I think I'll make me some homemade soup. I'm feeling pretty good, and that's the truth. It's neither drink nor drug induced. No, I'm just doing all right. And it's a great day to be alive. I know the sun's still shining when I close my eyes. There's some hard times in the neighborhood. But why can't every day be just this good? Oh, yeah. It's been 15 years since I left home I said good luck to every seed I'd sown Give it my best and then I left it alone I hope they're doing alright Now I look in the mirror and what do I see? Long wolf there staring back at me Long in the tooth but harmless as can be Lord, I guess he's doing alright And it's a great day to be alive I know the sun's still shining when I close my eyes There's some hard times in the neighborhood But why can't every day be just this good? Sometimes it's lonely, sometimes it's only me and the shadow.
sometimes I'm falling, desperately calling, howling at the Why can't every day be just this good? It's a great day. 